This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And wait until you meet Gina Chung. Y'all, just wait until you meet this woman. Sea Change is her debut novel. Okay, so there's an octopus. There's Dolores. But more importantly, there's Roe. And we got to start with Roe. I love this girl. I love this girl. But I, <laughs> before we started taping, I told you this. I was yelling at her because she did something dumb. She did a couple of dumb things. And I was yelling at a fictional character as if she could hear me through the pages. So do me a favor. Would you introduce Roe to listeners, please? Yes, I would be so happy to. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on the pod. I'm such a huge fan. But yes, Ro Bay is the protagonist of my novel, Sea Change. And yeah, she is an interesting and at times frustrating character, which I also felt in parts while I was drafting the story. So obviously, mm -hmm. as a writer, I'm super interested in, and a reader as well, I'm very interested in messy characters, characters who make mistakes, can't help themselves sometimes. And sometimes even knowingly self-sabotage themselves. And Ro is definitely that kind of character. She's someone who has really not dealt with a lot of the things from her past, from her childhood, um, from even things happening before her childhood. And so I think it's all kind of piled up at the point at which we meet her in the novel when she's about 30 years old, going through a lot of changes in life and dealing with them pretty badly in a lot of different, she has a lot of different coping mechanisms that are not really getting her to where she needs to go in order to actually deal with these issues. Gina, tequila is not supposed to be a food group. I'm sorry <laughs> to sound like your mom, but it's like, I love Roe, but there are times where you're like, oh, sweet. Oh, sweetie. Just have a cookie. Yeah, she's, <laughs> yeah, the drinking is definitely a numbing coping mechanism on her part. <laughs> but one of the things I do appreciate, I mean, here's this Korean American kid who's not perfect. She's not running around. She works in an aquarium in the mall. It's, yes. And I love aquariums. I really, I love aquariums. I grew up next to the New England Aquarium and like that was, okay, the penguins smelled really bad, but I loved the aquarium and standing in front of the giant shark tank. It was awesome. But she's working at a mall. It just happens that it's the aquarium and she's quite attached to this octopus. So Dolores, I mean, octopi feel like they're a little bit in the zeitgeist right now. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love octopuses. I've always been like such a fan of them because they're, mm -hmm. they're just so weird. They're yeah, like totally, totally. alien totally. Um, and so smart and curious and playful, but so different from us in like mm -hmm. all the ways. And so mm -hmm. I actually started with the Dolores first. And so okay. I started writing um, the lines that still open the book about how Dolores is turning blue. And initially I didn't, I wasn't quite sure who Dolores was. And I was like, I think she's an octopus. And then from there, Rose voice and then the aquarium just kind of came to life for me. And I really liked the idea of having this extraordinary creature because giant Pacific octopuses, which um, Dolores is a giant Pacific octopus, they're pretty cool in themselves, but I wanted to make her even more sort of spectacular and kind of speculative. And then I was like, okay, well, what is this? Who is this person that's telling us about Dolores? Why is she so interested in her? And that's kind of how um, Rose sort of came into being for me as well. So the color change on the octopus, that is not a thing. So they do change colors. A lot okay. of times it's like an evolutionary response to like hide from predators or get or get prey. But um, they do also change colors as like a means of expressiveness. And so I just wanted to make that especially, I, I wanted to make Dolores especially fluent in that way of communicating. I have to say, I really loved that. And I was hoping it was real. I mean, I spent a lot of time hoping that Dolores was really as special as she felt and i'm okay so true story i i don't really love animal narrator things 
I, that, I, that's not a device I love. I, mm -hmm. Watership down is not my idea of a good time. <laughs> and anyone who works with me knows this, actually. And <laughs> it's kind of Dolores, though, I got really attached to an octopus. And I blame you. I, I blame you entirely. <laughs> I'm like, why? I care so much about this octopus. The emotion that you're writing with when you're talking about her and her connection to Roe, it does involve her dad. And we are staying spoiler free, obviously, in this conversation because this is going to air really close to publication. And there's so much fun stuff and weird stuff and slightly enraging stuff because Roe, we're going to get back to Roe. We're going to get back to this girl. But Dolores does have a connection to Rose dad and his career. So let's let's bring that in for a second. Will you tell us that story? Yeah. So um, Dolores is, a as, as we've been talking about, especially special giant Pacific octopus. And Rose's father, who is a marine biologist, has been studying Dolores and working with her. And so the first time she ever meets Dolores is because her dad kind of introduces the two of them at the aquarium. And so she has a, a special connection with Roe, not just because of the fact that they interact every day at Roe's job, but because of this connect, point of connection with her father. And so, um, yeah, I think it's through her father that Roe kind of gets her own sort of sense of curiosity and uh, real love for the natural world and its creatures. Her parents, Roe's parents, her mom and dad, moms never planned to come to the state. She ends up here because dad gets a scholarship to grad school and mm -hmm. she follows him over and they they have a rough go of it they are one of these couples that it sounds like rose grandma had a little hand in it and there's the whole you know we kind of have to be married because we're that generation where you kind of have to be married and oof oof roe does not grow up in the happiest household yeah, no, she doesn't really. I think her parents are, they both love her very deeply and they do love each other, but they, um, I really tried to show in the, in the course of the book um, and trying to stay spoiler free, of course, but I really wanted to show how the two of them start out as these sort of bright eyed young people who, you know, have their differences. There are sort of red flags at the beginning, but do get married and stay together, as you said. But with Rose's mother in particular, I also wanted to show how this was someone, this was a woman who had her own dreams and aspirations and sort of felt like she had to shelve them in order to live the life of a wife and mother, which is sort of what she had been taught to do as part of her generation. So yeah, Rose grows up with a lot of sort of tension in the household, um, a lot of things that go unspoken. And I think when the novel opens with her now as a as a young adult in her 30s, um, you really start to see the impact that that has had on her and her, and how she navigates relationships. And she has this great guy, Tay, kind of a poster child for great guys. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> but she sabotages what they have. She just she doesn't know. And this is partially why I'm yelling at her. I'm like, no, really, he's a good guy. Like, what are you doing? She just doesn't know how to trust and be messy. And she thinks if she's messy in front of this guy, and I don't mean messy in terms of like leaving an empty tea bag somewhere. I, her dad has this tendency to leave <laughs> dead tea bags around the house, which I think is kind of hysterical, but I can imagine living with it. It's kind of gross, but I'm not talking that kind of messy, but she's afraid that if she actually shows herself to this dude, who's just a very nice guy, He's just so normal. He's just so nice. She's afraid that it's all going to blow up. So instead of letting it, instead of showing her belly, she kind of blows it up herself. 
Yeah, she does. I, yeah, in writing their relationship, I really did want the reader to sort of feel, you know, all the really good things about their relationship, right? And and the things that they do for each other, where he's sort of a problem solver, Tay. He, he's learned at a young age how to be a sort of caretaker. And so it makes sense that the two of them are attracted to each other. But, you know, in order for a relationship dynamic between two people like that to work, you know, one or the other person kind of has to get on the same wavelength as the other one. There's a line in the book that where Ro is talking about their relationship as she's introspecting. And she says, a relationship is kind of like a house and you have to try and be in the same room as much as possible. But she finds, you know, through her own sort of self-sabotaging tendencies that she can't help it. She can't help herself and sort of like trying to drive him away, basically. Still love her. <laughs> Still totally love this girl. I just like, I mean, I know I said it at the top of the show, but really I was yelling at her. There were so many points where I was yelling at a fictional character and I should be slightly embarrassed, but I'm not because that's the fun of it. I mean, full body read, right? Like you're in the story. and. You've written kind of a classic coming of age, right? She gets her act together. I'm not really giving anything away by saying coming of age. I mean, you'll get to the end. But for you sitting down to write, now you said you started with the octopus, you started with Dolores. But I want to talk about this. It's a really classically structured story. Everything keeps moving there. A couple of flashbacks, a couple, three, four, all of which are great. <laughs> Just thinking of the high school party <laughs> where, of course, Roe is like, why am I here? I don't really care about the cool kids. Her friend is like, I'm trying to be friends with the cool kids. And Ro ends up talking to an eight-year-old who's like, what's that on your face? Like, <laughs> mascara. It's mascara, it's eyeshadow. Yeah, it's stupid. I'm going to go wash it off. And then they go and look at the fish, which kind of, to me, sums up Ro. She's just, she's very much her own person. And I don't know how much she actually wants to participate in all of the stuff that we're supposed to want to participate in. <laughs> Yeah, I think she kind of has this sort of inherent distrust in this idea, the sort of prepackaged idea of adulthood that she's been sold all her life. I mean, she's seen with her parents that marriage and family isn't really what it's what it's always cracked up to be. And I think that's an interesting contrast between her and her best friend, Yuni, who accompanies her to this high school party that we were talking about. And so she's someone who I think she doesn't really believe in the idea of kind of going along to get along. I think she it's not only also that she doesn't believe in it, she like can't do it. She's just a very, I think, fortunately, but also unfortunately at times, honest character in that she can't ever fake how she's feeling. And so I think that's one of the reasons she's really drawn to um, Dolores and to the other animals in the aquarium, because an animal is never going to lie to you in order to sort of get ahead in life or pretend to be something that it isn't, unless it's for a very particular biological purpose. And so I think that's why she sometimes feels more comfortable in, in, in an area like the aquarium or looking at fish with an eight-year-old. Like, that's just where she, she feels most at home. So you start with Dolores, you end up with Roe. How does the rest of the cast show up for you as you're writing? I mean, are you an outliner? I am, okay. yeah. So I started off with this initial scene where, you know, Roe is giving us a sort of typical day at the aquarium mm -hmm. that immediately turns not typical. And I think Yuni was actually the next character to sort of pop up because I wanted her to have this foil within the aquarium. And then having them become best friends while also having them sort of be on, not 
necessarily opposite sides of the conflict that happens there, but they're they're sort of like at different cross purposes. Like I think having that tension was really interesting for me as a writer. And Rose's parents, I knew kind of right away that I would need to get into them and who they were in order to provide context for why she is the way she is. You have a favorite moment? With uh, Rose's parents? I think one of my Any of them. Any of them. Yeah. Well, I think with, uh, I mean, definitely with Rose's mother, I really enjoyed writing the scenes of just the two of them alone together, both in the childhood flashback scenes and in the um, present day scenes. I won't go too much into detail about those, but I think that they're also just, I really enjoyed writing Rose's mother. I wanted her to be a complex character, not at all the sort of stereotypical withdrawn or overbearing like Asian immigrant mother that we're often taught to think is the norm. And she has her own kind of emotional problems. I wanted her to be a character that felt like, you know, she had life beyond what we see on the page. And so I loved writing scenes with Rose's mom. Um, and like writing the teenage sort of flashback scenes with Yoon was really fun too, just because uh, Yoon is such a like, why are you like this type of character for both throughout the narrative? And so whenever the two of them together are together, it was easy for me to write like, like funnier kind of warmer scenes as well. The way Ro is who she is. I mean, Yuni is who she is. She, this, these are her factory presets. She's having a good time. She wants to have fun. She wants to be part of the world. You know, I'm not saying she's a follower. She's not one of these people who just only wants to do what other people wants to do, but she wants to participate. She really, really wants to participate. She wants to have parties and be in parties and wear nice clothes and do fun things and not just stare at a wall all the time. And Ro, <laughs> I mean, our girl is a little overwhelmed and I don't think she understands exactly how overwhelmed she is. I think she's just kind of like, well, what's the point? You know, there's a little bit of sarcasm happening and a little bit of snarkiness and all of this, but she's not as equipped as maybe her peers are. <laughs> Yeah, I think Yoonhee, I think with the two of them, it's so interesting that they both have these incredibly different worldviews. They mm -hmm, both need each mm -hmm. other in a lot of ways that, you know, you come to see throughout the course of the novel. Um, and I also, in the childhood flashback scenes, I also wanted to provide context for how Yoonhee is the way she is. She's had the benefit of being part of like a, a sort of larger, kind of more stable family structure. She has two older sisters. And so she's sort of grown up in this sort of joyfully cacophonous, very uh, female-centered family. And so for her, there are sort of, she grows up with this understanding of like, okay, this is how I'm going to live my life. And I'm going to be totally cool with that. And I'm going to go after what it is that I want. Whereas I think Ro hasn't always had that re kind of reassurance and that sort of stability throughout her own childhood and coming of age. So they're knocking heads, Ro's knocking heads with her parents. Of course, all, all this is metaphorically knocking her heads. She's got Dolores, who she's very, very fond of. But for you as the writer, you've got this outline that you're working from. When did you realize, though, that you had the thing that was going to become the novel Sea Change? Because you and I both know an outline, yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly fine starting point. If that's what you do, great, wonderful. But how much space do you give yourself for, you know, discovery and surprise and, oh, wait a minute, I think we're going to have to turn left instead of right. To be honest, I, so with the outline, I basically made... I, I thought I for, some, for whatever reason, I was really attached to the number 15 throughout the course of writing the book. It, I think it ended up having one more chapter than that. But I liked the idea of having it sort of be alternating past and present. Um, and I was thinking specifically, there are a lot of books that do this immensely well. But one of my favorites is Mostly Dead Things by Kristen Arnett, where that character, like also just a lovable 
mess. And like you see sort of in the way that she structures the book, how everything that that character is doing in the present day is informed by experiences that she's gone through both as a child and as a daughter trying to live up to her father's legacy and with her brother as well in that book. And so I was thinking a lot about how I could do that for to tell this particular story. And I think what sort of gave me a sense of like wanting to continue with the story and realizing like, oh, there's something here was just the fact that Rose's own voice just felt so potent to me. I started out writing it in first person POV, switched it up a couple times, but always came back to first person just because I think one of the real luxuries of writing in that perspective is that you just really get to just be in the skin of that character and look out at the world through their eyes. And every time I did that, where I really just kind of let myself be in Rose's head and write what she was seeing, it felt really surprising to me where, you know, she was suddenly expressing feelings and making all these metaphors that I didn't expect her to be coming up with. And hopefully, I, I mean, I joke with my friend that's friends that this is like a sad girl book, but hopefully it's also funny in parts. I think she's also a, like a character with a sense of humor in her own yeah, way. Yeah, I don't think it's a total sad girl book. I mean, there are <laughs> moments, obviously, and <laughs> we're going to talk about some of that stuff feeding the sad girl, but it's not, for me as a reader, it's not a total sad girl narrative. I think Roe is, yeah, she's definitely funny. She's definitely, definitely funny. But I don't feel like she's going through the motions per se. Like she's really, she's all angles and elbows. And she's just, I don't know, sad girl stories. Like, I feel like a lot of those narrators aren't messy enough. I just mm. kind of feel like the sad girl thing is like the thing. And Roe's mad. She's really angry. And we don't talk about women's anger. Like, it's still really unacceptable for women to be visually, actively angry. It makes people really uncomfortable. And that's one of the things I appreciate about her. And here I am saying, you know, I was yelling at a fictional character. But also <laughs> her mom. Like her mom is openly, and especially for someone of her mom's generation to be like, no, I'm pissed. I am, and here are all the reasons why. And it's really kind of refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I agree. We don't really get enough. Like, I think there's like some more attention now being paid, especially in the arts and cultural space to like women's anger. But it's still such a taboo topic, especially for women of color, Asian American women. Like we're not supposed to be vocally angry. The most we can be is like sad in a very aesthetically pleasing way. And so I, I, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. I wanted Roe to really break that and to, to have the luxury and the space to be messy in all those ways. And you're totally right at the, at the, the flip side of that, of that sadness that she is experiencing is a deep seated anger at all of these betrayals from her past at all of the losses she feels she's had to go through and not been able to talk about. So yeah, thank you for noticing that. Well, also, I mean, the fact that there's this stereotype that Asian Americans can be a little robotic and, you know, that we're not good at processing verbal emotion or like, we're just, you know, like, give us an abacus and we're fine. And I'm just like, oh, man, are we still here? Like, can we just kick that stereotype to the curb? Like, can we just get there now? Like, and I think Roe is going to help get us there. I mean, that's the thing that I like about it. She makes some very bad decisions. She says some mean stuff just because she's hurt and doesn't like she hasn't figured out the language because also she has no one to model herself on. I mean, Yuni is adorable, but I don't think she has the language either because even when she's getting mad at Rose, she can't say, I want these things beyond I want the popular kid. I like I want to be friends with the popular kids. Like that's everything else she's saying to Rose kind of like, well, why can't you just be normal? Yeah. <laughs> and Rose like, well, define normal. And 
but that's, you know, I keep coming back to this high school party, but it feels like that's kind of the one place where she's, Yoon-hee's able to say, this is the thing that I want. Mm-hmm. And you're not helping me get there. And you're my friend. Like uh, the other conflicts that they're having, she's kind of standing there almost like a mom with her arms crossed going, well, why can't you get this? Why can't you get this? She means well, but it's slightly infuriating to have someone say, like to have your peers say, why can't you get this? It's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I think they're both so young, you know, like both in the present day and in of the novel and also in the in that high school scene. And um, Yoon-hee is someone, I think, who one of her sort of love languages, I guess, is really trying to fix people from afar. She's thinking to herself, like, uh, we're going to like get popular this year in that in that high school scene. And she's really trying to bring uh, Ro along, you know, there's there isn't this sense that she wants to compete with her. She wants to wherever she wants to go. She wants to bring her best friend with her, which is a very understandable impulse. But in those moments, I think she's still too young to understand like, oh, this is maybe not what she wants. This is what I want. And I don't necessarily have to force this on her. I think it takes both of them a lot of of time and some time apart and some maturity, hopefully by the end of the book, to, to realize that about themselves and to give each other space to be who they really are, which are two very different people. I'm not saying, I'm not giving anything away by saying uh, Dolores gets sold. The aquarium, mall aquarium, shockingly not doing well, <laughs> needs to sell its octopus to raise some revenue. And this is a really special octopus. I do kind of think actually Dolores is is one of the levers that gets the women back to where we would hope they might be because their friendship is it's having a little moment it's ha- it's not broken beyond repair or anything but they're having a moment <laughs> it's yeah. not good that octopus i think is part of what because they're coming it from opposite sides completely and he's like we have to do this because otherwise you're not going to have a job we're just all going to be gone like we have to do this and dolores has this really emotional response to a 20 foot giant Pacific octopus. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that's another instance of I think Yuni trying to have like sort of the bigger picture and say like, look, we need to you need to get on board with this. You're the you're the person who's works the most with her. Like, can you help me with this? And Ro can't help it but see it as a personal attack and to and to you know she doesn't want to get with the program because this is a creature that means so much to her. And um, I think in a lot of ways also she sees parts of herself in Dolores in that. I mean, she's an octopus. She doesn't process emotions in the same way that humans do. And so I think she herself in in, in Dolores, but also kind of wants to be more like her without realizing that, you know, she's not an octopus. She's a human being and she has to branch out and be around other human beings, really. Grief can be tricky to write about in a way that isn't cliched, that isn't overwhelming, that isn't scoldy. I feel like sometimes you read about grief and, and someone's saying, well, this is how it should be. And I'm like, well, actually, grief isn't meant to be managed, right? Like you don't make lists to get you, well, you can try, but it doesn't work. You can just mm-hmm. like get to the other side of grief. And it's not a one-dimensional thing. And I think sometimes in fiction and film and certainly music, it shows up as this thing. And it's just, it's, Sorry, it's more like an octopus squishing itself into spaces where you're like, how did it get in there? Because I mean, you have a moment where Dolores like is hiding somewhere and apparently an octopus can squish itself into the tiniest space as long as its beak can fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so that's true. Yes, yeah. That, it's that's pretty not amazing. just a Gina making a cool thing. Okay. Your octopus is a really good metaphor for grief. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think of that, but that's such a beautiful, that is, that's absolutely true. I think uh, grief is this very malleable and changeable thing. And um, in writing Rose experiences of mm-hmm. grief, I really wanted to show how surprising grief can be. I mean, you just, it's just a thing, as you said, that can't really be fixed or managed. It's just something you learn to carry with you as time goes on. I wanted to show in terms of her experiences of it, how it surprises her. Like she'll turn a corner and it's there in in some form she didn't think it would be in. And it's just something that she's going to have to understand and uh, be gentle with herself about. I think at this, at the stage of the novel where we first meet her, she really has not known how to deal with this. And, and part of her is like, why can't I just get over this? Why can't I just get over the things that I've, I've gone through? You know, and I think this definitely comes back to mama because mama's prickly, but she is, again, not that stereotypical. And thank you so much for doing this. Like, she's not yelling at her kid because her kid got sick, right? Like, okay, some moms can be like that, whatever. But like, somehow we got this moment in literature and uh, to a certain extent film where it's like the yelling immigrant mom where it's like well i love you and i'm showing you how i love you by yelling at you (laughs) it's like well no it's not quite that but rose mom is really trying she just no one ever gave her a chance to learn this language so how is she going to teach her kid you know i can imagine that grandma is not teaching either Grandma doesn't have the language either. Grandma's just excited that she got these two together and they got married and they had a kid. <laughs> yeah. How do we start changing that conversation though? Like how do we get Ro into the world so she can have that conversation? I mean, is this where we talk about Ro's cousin? Because Ro's cousin is kind of cool, but she's wrestling with some stuff that feels really new to this family. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to talk about Ro's cousin. So Rachel, yeah, she's uh, slightly older than Ro at a bit at a different stage in life. And um, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she's um, going through a pretty messy divorce situation. She's um, a single mom with a kid. I wanted to include Rachel and Ro's dynamic as well, because I think it gives Ro a chance to access a different part of herself whenever she's with Rachel. She's despite the fact that Rachel is older than her, I think Rose is immensely protective of Rachel because of what she's going through. And the sort of version of fractured relationship that, that Rachel is experiencing, Rose saw a bit of that in her own home growing up. And so I think with the two of them, I really liked getting them together in a scene as well, just because Rachel would often sort of manifest on the page as being like, no, I'm the one taking care of you. And Ro would be like, actually, you are not in a position to be doing that. You need to take care of yourself and of your child. In the book, I really wanted to sort of have this kind of female matrilineage, I guess, of sorts of like women in this family really learning what it means to try and take care of themselves while also still, you know, having responsibilities to care for their dependents and their children. And I think it's so true that um, in a lot of our families in generations past, there wasn't this opportunity and this vocabulary to talk about loss and difficult feelings. It was just about getting to the next stage of life or just even just about plain survival. And so yeah, I think it's something that Ro really has to teach herself and that Rachel also has to teach herself too. Yeah, and honestly, it's not something that belongs solely to Asian Americans. No, like, can yeah. we just be clear? Like, there are plenty of folks in generations prior to this, but it seems to have stuck on to us, like, you know, the post-it note. And it's like, oh, this post-it note hasn't fallen off yet. Like, this is really, this isn't just us. Like, I can think of generations of, like, you know, I grew up in New England and I can think of plenty of people who didn't have language for stuff either. And yet somehow 
it's stuck on us. And I'm like, you know, we're not playing pin the tail on the donkey. (laughs) (laughs) We're just all trying to figure out how to get to the next thing. Yeah, I think it has to do with that stereotype you were talking about, where we're seen as these like robotic, you know, model minorities who don't know how to talk about feelings. And it's really everyone who doesn't know how to talk about feelings. (laughs) There are times where I'm just, you know, I have nieces and nephews, and sometimes they say the most surprising things. And I'm like, okay, as a species, we are in much better shape than I thought we were. Thank you, 15 year old. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. Keep going. It's okay. And the 20-year-olds, sometimes you can, we'll, we'll get there. But I want to talk about you as a reader and as a writer and some of the big voices that influenced you over time and helped get us to see change. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. But definitely one of the first that comes to mind for me is Waiki Wang's incredible novel, Chemistry. And I'm such a fan of her work. But I read that book, I think, back when it first came out, maybe like 2018 or so. And it it really changed my life as a writer and as a reader where I'd always sort of been writing on and off, but never really took it seriously. And that book was the first I'd ever read of its kind that really showed like that particular kind of immigrant family dynamic. And that's kind of what spurred my decision to apply to MFA programs and really try to take the whole writing thing seriously. And so, oh my gosh, chemistry is such a big influence for me. Jean Kyung Fraser's book, Pizza Girl, is so good. And it's also, I think, about not only a young woman trying to deal with the legacy of a pretty complicated father and her relationship with him, but also like kind of going through the mundanities and indignities of like a job while also dealing with some pretty extraordinary circumstances of her own. Um, So yeah, uh, loved Pizza Girl as well. Um, And uh, Rachel Kong's Goodbye Vitamin 2 was a really big influence for me just in terms of how that character has such a, also like a very unique way of looking at the world and a lot of the sort of emotional exploration that happens in the book. I mean, there's some really amazing poignant scenes that happen within the family, but a lot of it actually happens when the character is just like looking at things and making observations about the world to herself. So yeah, those are some of the the books that I was thinking about that I really kind of held for myself as emotional touchstones while writing the book. And then, as I mentioned, Kristen Arnett's Mostly Dead Things, which I think is just so brilliant and tender and funny while also being incredibly moving. So you're reading for voice first, language second, it sounds like. And then story and character. A story and character are fine. And yes, you can argue that character is part of voice, but I think voice is significantly bigger than character. And I think, you know voice can go off the rails really quickly. I need voice. Like, I need voice. Without voice, I'm kind of like, okay, hi, we're here. (laughs) But am I right about that? Are you reading for voice first? I think so. Yeah, I never really thought about that until you just pointed it out. But yeah, I think uh, with all these characters, like, you can point out some thematic similarities, of course, but it's mostly just that I start reading and then it grabs me off the page. I'm like, oh, whatever this person is going through, whether it's like they're at a pizza job that they really are not passionate about or they're a burned out chemist. Like I want, I need to know what happens next because their way of seeing the world is so specific and interesting. And so, yeah, I think language is also pretty important to me, but it's most, it's usually like a particular perspective, which I think is voice that, that kind of carries me through as a reader. Yeah. I can forgive. If the voice is there, I can forgive language in some cases, but if I don't have a voice and I'm forced to sort of rely on story, Mm. that's quite often absolutely not enough for me. I it just like, I need that thing. <laughs> you know it when you see it. I, it's a cliche for a reason. It's a terrible phrase, but 
voice really is that thing where you just you feel it and you say okay i will follow you down a rabbit hole and i will go i don't have to like character i mean i've admitted multiple times in this episode that I'm like i'm yelling at and <laughs> i do like her but i'm still yelling at this kid i don't care if i like a character that likability and again likability i feel like is a word that gets thrown around more at women authors and women characters than it does with men I'm like, i can come up with a list of male characters and male authors where i'm like no one's ever mentioned the word likability ever ever in x number of years books whatever and likability is just not a thing that gets raised so voice yeah i think it's uh yeah i totally agree with you i think likability is totally an overrated thing that often gets like that doesn't even occur to me when i'm reading a book really um it's but it is a thing that gets lobbed a lot at uh women writers in particular especially if they're writing female characters where it's like oh i didn't like her it's like okay well what did you think of the story and what she's going through and I think it's, you know, it all, it of course goes back to gendered expectations of how women are supposed to move through the world and like how dare this fictional character like act as if she doesn't care what what we, the reader, think of her. Um, whereas I am, I'm so drawn to that when a character is so completely themselves, no matter the cost to themselves or to the people around them. Um, and I think with voice for me, it's, it just occurred to me while you were talking about this, I think it has to do with a sense of trust where, uh, which I think is different from the reliability of a narrator. Like a, a narrator can totally be unreliable and the writer can get away with it. But I think for me, it's a voice that I have to want to trust where I will follow you, you know, because what you're saying to me is so interesting that I will drop whatever it is I'm doing to, to, to follow you there. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Do you miss... Ro, now that you're done with this book, because I know you're working on the next thing, and I know she's not in the next thing, but do you miss her? I do. Yeah, it's funny. I'm uh, so I'm working on two different projects. I'm working on revisions for my short story collection, uh, which is coming out next year. And I'm also trying to work in bits and pieces on my next novel, which is going to be pretty different, I think, tonally from Sea Change. And it's two very different characters. It's actually my first time juggling two protagonists for this next novel. I think they have a very different sort of perspective and set of experiences from this character. I do miss her because I was so close to her for all those months and, you know, the year that I was working on this book. And she is a character that I think, uh, she's the type of character that I am sort of drawn to, but I don't know that I'm, I'm going to write a similar one for a while just because I feel like I've done so much exploration with her. But yeah, uh, I think in terms of like, thinking about where she might be sort of in the fictional universe of the book. I, I, I think that she is doing, doing better, I would hope. And uh, yeah, I think it, it was really fun to, to sort of write with her and, and stay with her during, during the times when I was working on it. I mean, I think she's still messy, but I do think ultimately <laughs> she is better now than where she was when we first met her. I think she is in a really, really rough spot. She gets it. We just get a really excellent novel to read in the meantime, and it does take her a minute, but I feel like Ro gets it. And I feel like Ro is just one of these voices that I want as many people as possible to meet because she's just, she's her own. I mean, there are folks who are just like, well, it's a coming of age story. I'm like, yeah, sometimes coming of age stories are really, really great. And yes, sometimes you're like, oh, cool. We've done this. This is not that book. <laughs> this is not that book. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I think with the coming of age themes, um, I mean, I had someone say to me where they were kind of like, oh, well, it's sort of a like a later in life coming of age, right? Just because the character is like in her 30s, she's not like a teenager. And I was like, that's so interesting because to me, I think the process of coming of age never really ends. Um, I mean, I think, you know, for Roe, it's a particular set of circumstances that she finds herself in. But coming of age for me just really means getting to know who you are and coming mm-hmm. to terms with that and accepting it and loving it as best as you can. And that's a process that a lot of people are still undergoing no matter what age they are. Yeah. And I feel very strongly that coming of age, you know, you can be 70 and we should be applying that particular phrase. <laughs> like Better to learn at 70 than not at all. Yeah, totally. There are plenty of people who don't learn anything at all. Let's not be those people. Let's read all of the books and continue to evolve and change and learn stuff and, you know, have groovy lives because we had a, you know, an epiphany on the page. I know you can't talk about the next book, but you are in a place where you've had a little free time because your fellowship finished, you know, you're in revisions. All the- read anything good lately? Oh my gosh. Yes. So many books. I have been obsessed with um, Sarah Duncan Matthews's All This Could Be Different mm-hmm. ever since I read it when it came out last summer. Also speaking of coming of age, just a beautiful, yeah. beautiful coming of age story that takes a lot of turns you don't necessarily expect from the initial setup. I'm also reading Jonathan Escoffery's fantastic collection, If I Survive You, which I love. Uh, I think it's been billed as a story collection, but I feel it's sort of more of a novel in stories, which there are some differences there, I think. But yeah, I'm, I'm really loving it so far and all the different sort of perspectives that we get from the family, even though it sort of focuses mostly on um, the younger son of the family. I'm also reading Joseph Hahn's Nuclear Family, which is a, a just a hilarious and beautiful yep. novel of family and you know, the sort of like uh, marketing of like Korean diaspora food in the food world <laughs> and the particular dynamics of Korean Americans in Hawaii, which is not something I know too much about personally. So it's been really interesting mm-hmm. and fun reading that. I'm also reading Please Report Your Bug Here by my friend Josh Riedel, which I'm really enjoying as well. Oh. It's a sort of speculative like yep. tech novel. So yeah. Yep. That's, I I have that. I haven't gotten to it yet. All apologies. <laughs> if I could read all of the things I want to read as I'm prepping for the show, my life would be a little outrageously, overwhelmingly great. Not that it isn't now, but yeah, sometimes I don't always have time to read all of the things I want to read because we're doing this. Is there anything we missed that you really wanted to talk about with Sea Change? Because I know I've been such a pain about no spoilers, no spoilers. And there are some, I mean, there are some storylines we have left out a little bit because they're so great when you encounter them in the book. In terms of the process of writing the book, mm-hmm. I did want to note that I wrote it during like a pretty, I, I wrote it during the pre-vaccine era of the pandemic, oh, sort of okay. in 2020. And in fall of 2020 was mm-hmm. I, was when I was sort of really in the thick of drafting it. And I finished the first rough draft of the book in those three months of the fall from September through December. And okay. I don't think I would have been able to do that had it been a sort of more, quote unquote, normal time. But I think it was such a concentrated period in my life of of grief and loss. And just sort of like existential spinning out in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those themes do get reflected in the book. But I was also thinking at the time of like, you know, just how loneliness is such a universal experience for so many of us. And I I do hope that the book is sort of a bomb for that and helps make readers feel less alone because that's one of the main reasons I write and why I read is to to seek connection, to see, you know, versions of my own emotional experiences reflected on the page. So 
I hope that um, that's one of the things that readers can get from the book. Yeah, you did it. Totally, <laughs> I'm just going to own it right now. I'm just gonna be like, yeah, you did it. And it also seems like a really good place to end this episode. So Gina Chung, thank you so much. Sea Change is out now. It's our April Discover pick, and it's a trade paperback original. It's in paperback right now. So you could actually buy a second copy and give it to a friend. It's really great to see you. Thank you so much, Miwa. This was so great. Hello, readers. We're back with another TBR Top Off. We're here to recommend a couple of books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Sea Change. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by one of my favorite book buddies, Madison. Hello. Hello, I'm Madison coming to you from my store in Los Angeles. So we're going to jump right in. I'm going to go ahead and kick things off with a book that is very odd, but very satisfying. And that is Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead. Uh, it's by Emily R. Austin. It is a novel that is pretty heftily steeped in the grayness of ennui, but it does have these splashes of hope in sort of like a syrupy form that I really appreciated. It follows this woman named Gilda. <sighs> she is in a rut. She's been through some stuff. She is really having troubles getting out of this hole that she's built for herself. You know, self-isolation, morbid thoughts. She is obsessed with death in a way that is on the verge of becoming unhealthy. She decides to enroll in some therapy. And what better way to enroll in therapy when uh, you find one that is free? She sees an ad for an offer for free therapy at this church and decides to take that step and get herself out of this shell. And when she arrives, it is assumed that she has come in for a job offer. The receptionist at this church has just recently died. And through obviously some miscommunication and some identity issues, Gilda is, of course, there to replace this old lady receptionist. And Gilda being her and being somebody who hasn't quite confronted the truth of things for herself or in the world around her, says, yeah, that's absolutely why I'm here. To the point where she has taken this job. She is not interested in church at all. She is not interested in being a receptionist at all. But this maybe this is a sign that this is something that she needs to do. It turns into her having a correspondence via email back and forth with a friend of this receptionist who is this cute, sweet old lady. And Gilda is taking on the identity of this perished receptionist and starting this email correspondence with this sweet, innocent, unknowing woman. Or is she? Some twists and turns start to happen. Some weirdness ensues. It has a little bit of a murder mystery kind of happening. I don't want to get into it too much. It's a great study on woe, on depression, on that sort of gray feeling that uh, bogs you down. But it's also got moments of humor. It's also got an honest look at what hope can bring and how to get yourself out of a rut. I think it's a very special title. So please check out Everyone in This Room Will Someday Be Dead by Emily R. Austin. Madison, what do you have for us? I am so excited for this episode. You know, I love my sad girl vibes when I read. 
I'm always a fan of sad books. And one of my favorite authors, Adam Silvera, is the king of writing sad books. So really, I could probably recommend any of his repertoire to fit this episode, but I went with More Happy Than Not by Adam Silvera. It is his debut book. I feel like it flies a little bit under the radar. Like he really hit it off with They Both Die at the End. More Happy Than Not and History Is All You Left Me. Those are two equally amazing books. More Happy Than Not is probably my favorite Adam Silvera book. It was his debut novel. In it, he confronts race, class, sexuality, all through the main character, Aaron Soto, who is struggling to find happiness after a family tragedy. It definitely hits, like, close to home, watching a teenager having to deal with, like, tragedy and find happiness again and heal, and he kind of finds it first through his girlfriend, Genevieve. She kind of helps him along, and then he meets his new friend, someone he like almost instantly connects with, his best friend, Thomas. And Thomas really gets Aaron to open up, talk about his past, confront his future. And so then you have Aaron thinking about all all these things. He's finally opening up, dealing with his trauma, thinking about his future. Because as a teenager, you kind of have to do both, right? We've all been there, like in high school, being like, I'm going through this. This happened to me in the past, but also, you know, I need to think about my future and what I want because am I going to go to college? Am I, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like, that's the question that looms over so many teenagers. Like, you're asked by the time you're like a kindergartner, what do you want to be when you grow up? So dealing with the weight of his future and his past, it's a story of him slowly discovering himself. But as he does that, there's this threat of it all shattering, his new happiness just shattering as he learns more and more about who he is as a person. And I think what I love about Silvera's writing is he always kind of has that it's not a sci-fi twist, but it's like kind of like a sci-fi twist. Like you kind of see it and they both die at the end. And this one, that twist comes from a memory alteration procedure. And in Aaron's mind, this may be the only cure to what he is feeling. Um, So I don't want to give anything away, but I do think at its core, this is a book of like finding that balance of, you know, it's okay to not be happy all the time and to heal and to learn new things about yourself. I think as people, we're always growing. There's always room for growth, which I think is why I really like this debut novel by him. Um, I think he does show growth really well in his writing, which is why I wanted to recommend More Happy Than Not. Fantastic. As always, I I knew as soon as you said Adam Silvera, I was like, here we go. I know how much you love him. He's fantastic. That is all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.